Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, a rebel coalition has ramped up its attacks in the Central African Republic. Will this imperil President Chouadera's second term? And the Somali political leader at loggerheads over elections scheduled for early 2021. What is required to break the impasse? Plus, we discuss a proposal for responsible sourcing of cobalt in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Is a do-no-harm standard too low of a bar? So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. A rebel alliance known as the Coalition of Patriots for Change, or CPC, has been behind a series of attacks in recent weeks, including on Bangui, the capital of the Central African Republic. The fighters have been launching attacks against the government of the newly re-elected president, Faustin Archange Touadera. Rebel groups have attacked and seized several towns, pushing thousands of Central Africans to flee to neighboring Cameroon. The Cameroonian army is on high alert along the border, trying to prevent deadly incursions by armed gangs. What does this mean for stability in President Twadera's second term? Joining me to discuss CAR and other topics are Mike Jobbins, Vice President for Global Affairs and Partnership at Search for Common Ground, Larat Kasinde, a Global Program Quality Specialist also at Search, and Pamela Fierce-Walsh, Senior Advisor on Conflict Diamonds and the U.S. Representative to the Kimberley Process. Okay, Mike, walk us through the latest in the Central African Republic. Before and after the elections in late December, the CPC attacked several towns across the country. By one estimate, the six factions that are part of the CPC control some two-thirds of the country. So what is the CPC and what's behind this uptick in fighting? Yeah, Judd, so the CPC was created about a month ago, just before the elections, when six armed groups came together. A number of them had been part of the Seleka rebel alliance that was in, in power and, and led to the transitional government, uniting with a, a couple of the anti-Balaka militias that had then been formed to oppose the Seleka. So in some ways, it's an unnatural alliance, as local people have, have taken to calling it. It brings together a number of the most formidable and active armed groups in the country, including some of those that signed the peace agreement a year ago in Khartoum. And like you said, they do control a shocking amount of the country. The government really has control over Bangui and areas perhaps to 100 kilometers outside it. Population centers in the interior of the country are in contested zones. So neither the government nor the rebels can really be said to have a permanent control with the UN. The Central African government, with support from Russia, Rwanda, and other allied governments, has been able to halt in a lot of ways the CPC advance. But right now, the CPC is bringing a lot of pressure on Bangui. There's the attack just a few days ago into the capital itself. At the moment, the CPC controls a really critical town called Buar on the Cameroon-Central African border that enables them to really block a lot of the movement of goods and supplies into the capital. And what we're seeing right now is a risk as this political conflict, this armed conflict between the government and its allies with this new rebel alliance deepens. We've been seeing some attempts at some really worrying signs of escalating ethnic clashes between the Baka and the Baya ethnic groups, two of the largest groups in the Central African Republic. 
public that are seen as sort of beyond opposite sides of this conflict. And so there's a risk that on the backdrop of this political conflict around uh, unresolved elections, a security conflict between the government and the armed groups, a metastasization into a kind of ethnic dimension, which would be really quite terrible. So this is going to have to be something that's really quite high on the agenda for the Biden administration as they come in and, and for really all of the international community as they look at sort of where the emerging crises in Africa. Well, that's exactly where I wanted to go, Mike, because this is an inauspicious start to President Twadera's second term. It is one of the many things that President Biden should be looking at when it comes to a sub-Saharan Africa and conflict. And the choices aren't great right now, right? There's you know some things that we can do in terms of training the FACA. There's ways that perhaps we can rethink about MINUSCA's mandate. But ultimately, the Central Africans are going to have to resolve this. And I presume there'll be a question about renegotiating the 2019 peace deal, which has been falling apart. And Laurent, I wonder with your deep experience on Central Africa, you know, how do you see the challenges here? If they decide to have a deal, well, that's only going to reinforce the kind of violent brinkmanship that the CPC is engaging in. It may hobble the new government, the DDR process. They may have to hand out jobs to a whole host of people that aren't qualified. But the alternative is more fighting. What do you think is the way forward here? Reacting to that question, I would say, firstly, the reason I think all is bad with war is the fact that the sounds of guns tend to muffle the vast majority of voices, which represent mostly civilians and victims. And talking firstly as a Congolese person who have been living this kind of situation several times in the past, I would like to flag that the majority of Central Africans' voices remain even now with civilians. And we know they are silenced by the ongoing climate of fear and violence. So instead of focusing on this six rebel movements, I will try to avoid sending a message to Central African youth that joining or creating a rebel movement is the only way their voices can be heard. So for this end, I would first recommend that internal and even external stakeholders prioritize a ceasefire at this moment, and most importantly, a humanitarian access to civilians who we can imagine are now fearing for their lives, but also struggling to cover some of their basic needs. But looking at the future, if in any case people have to rethink the peace process, I would recommend that people do a bit more in making sure that the process is more inclusive, in representing the civil society, the victims, and even some of the marginalized voices, which can be identified and assessed across the countries. Lastly, as a search, we always know that there is opportunities that we can seek and find even in the midst of instability. For example, it's possible to leverage the efforts of Central African civil society who has been able to create thousands of peace committees at village levels across the country. We also can still do a lot with local media and some of the, the civil movements who are playing a crucial role in preventing a spread of a hate speech and also remain a crucial in avoiding a race of manipulation. So this is the way I see the future and the next steps. And so those are really important points, Laurent, particularly, you know, making sure that this is an inclusive process that's bringing civil society into the conversation. Pamela, we're recording this episode on January 21st. President Biden has just been sworn in. So I don't know if he has a policy on Central African Republic. I'm not going to ask you to share that. 
But regardless of administration, the U.S. has a number of key interests here, democracy promotion, conflict and atrocity prevention. And then there's the global power competition issues here and then transparency in the mining sector, which is something that you work on. You know, how do you think about all of these different issues at once? And how do we have confidence that we can drive towards a successful outcome when we have so many things that we want to do with partners in Central Africa? I want to first start just by saying that, you know, we deplore the uptick in violence in CAR. And, you know, the U.S. government is really concerned. And I want to reach out and express support and care for the innocent lives, the displacement, the life-threatening situation that's hampering humanitarian access, among other things. But your question is well-placed in that there are a lot of competing priorities in the Central African Republic. And from my perspective, working on conflict and critical minerals, I'm constantly thinking about what are we doing about transparency in the mining sector? How are we implementing the Kimberley process effectively and what can we be doing more of? And these dynamics on the ground just complicate that so incredibly. I think your speakers have outlined some really effective lines of thought about inclusivity, et cetera. But right now, getting through this very tumultuous time is, I think, the first priority. Well, yeah, I think that's absolutely right, Pamela, and something perhaps we can get back together. Hopefully we're in a better place in CAR to address some of these other issues as well. Mike, any other thoughts you want to add before we move on to the second section? Well, I think the one thing that I would just say, you know, I was in the Central African Republic at the start of the last war in 2012, and I was struck by a UN official who, after looking at a map charting the select advance, said, you know, for the last 10 years, we've been substituting peacekeeping for peace, or we've been substituting humanitarian aid in place of development. And I think that the situation we're in reflects that paradigm that's been going on for maybe two decades now, where despite all the international attention in mobilizing short-term peacekeeping assistance and providing emergency humanitarian aid, we as a world community in partnership with the Central African government and the Central African people could do a lot more to help the young people that Laurent alluded to build a different kind of future for themselves and for their country. And so even as we respond to this crisis, uh, there's a lot of value, I think, for the new administration to think about like what's the end game? How are we structuring U.S. policy, working with our partners, working with the Central African government and people to get to a place where the country isn't fragile 10 years from now? And 10 years from now, we're not talking about the next rebel advance and the next peacekeeping surge and the next set of humanitarian issues. So I think that there is a moment really to dream big and to think big in our partnership. Okay, let's move on to the second topic, which is about the Somali elections. And there's been several delays to the Somali elections. And I'll give you the shortest thumbnail on why we're in the place that we are. And then we'll kind of walk through some of the ways in which we can think about it. But getting to an election in Somalia over the last decade is a very difficult process. There's been delays both in the last election that was in 2017 and in the election beforehand in 2012. And it's important to know that this is not a one person, one vote process. Big breath here. Let me go through it. It's clan-based electoral colleges that are of 101 delegations, and each of them will vote for one seat in the 275-member lower house while the seats in the upper house with 54 members are selected by state assemblies. Then there's voting that takes place in 11 locations across the country that's supposed to be managed by the federal and state election committees. And then the new parliament will finally choose the country's president. Now, this was all supposed to happen. Uh, it was envisioned in this compromise, the September 17th consensus agreement. But in early January, Putlan and Jubaland, these are member states of Somalia, backed out of the agreement. Government briefly threatened that they would hold the elections without them. And right now, as of this recording, there are negotiations. 
The U.S. Embassy in the Somali capital Mogadishu in a statement Friday urged Somali President Mohamed Abdullahi Mohamed and other Somali leaders, including Saeed Abdullahi Deni, Abdelaziz Lafdegaren, and Ali Gudlawe, to resolve outstanding issues to enable the holding of peaceful elections that the Somali people deserve. There should be no partial elections or parallel processes, added the statement. Now, Pamela, you and I worked together very closely on the 2012 election, and that was a success. It led to the end of the transitional federal government. There were delays in that process as well. And I bet you're having a little bit of deja vu as I walk through this whole process. But recalling that earlier election that you and I worked on from the U.S. government side, what is your thoughts? Why is it so difficult and challenging? And why are these elections prone to delays? Judd, putting on my former Somalia expert hat, I'll simply say that I think your description of the process for the election kind of outlines why it's challenging. Somalia is an incredibly, incredibly difficult, frustrating environment in which to work from just a hard perspective, but also just through the policy apparatus and through all of the moving pieces. What I will say what's vastly different from 2012 when we were in the trenches on this issue together is that the U.S. government has a much more forward-leaning posture. I'm so proud of my colleagues in the field who are working out of Mogadishu, who are engaging directly with their Somali counterparts in ways that we simply hadn't been able to in 2012. So I think that there's a lot that has changed from that time, but the reasons for delays are simply because it takes time and it takes a lot of buy-in and there's going to be invariable delays around processes that are complicated, particularly environments that simply lend themselves to greater difficulty rather than less. Yeah, one thing that I would add, too, is that the process keeps evolving in Somalia. So each time there has been an attempt to get to this standard of one person, one vote and the security situations don't allow for it. So there's a lot of adjustments, often sometimes very late in the game to come up with this situation uh, and circumstances that are as inclusive as possible, but are going to be short of this one person, one vote. So that fluidity, both in the security situation and the political process, I think gets us to this sort of brinkmanship every time. But one of the good news, uh, in addition to the fact that we have a great team out in Mogadishu under Ambassador Yamamoto, is that the international partners are really working together. And that was, I think, a key when you and I worked in 2012. But I just want to share this list of a number of foreign governments and international organizations that recently signed on to a letter of concern, a statement of concern. And it tells you how many stakeholders, global partners are committed to stability and democracy and inclusiveness in Somalia. So AMISOM, which is the AU peacekeeper mission, Belgium, Canada, Denmark, Egypt, Ethiopia, the European Union, France, Germany, IGAD, which is the Intergovernmental Authority on Development, Italy, Ireland, Norway, Sweden, Switzerland, Turkey, UK, US, and the United Nations. And one of the hallmarks, I think, when you and I worked on this, Pamela, was that we had this convening of stakeholders, regional, European, US, but also Middle Eastern and Gulf to work through some of these issues. And I'm very encouraged that that's where we still are today. But I want to turn to Mike and Laurent. This isn't where you guys work. This isn't a place where a search has programming, as far as I can tell. But best practices, what, what do you guys think are the you know, ways that we can get to an election sooner rather than later? That's right, Judge. Search for Common Ground doesn't have programming in Somalia, but the dynamics there have a, a really big impact on our programs uh, working in places like Lam or Garissa on the Kenyan side of the border, trying to strengthen human security there and, and really all along the, the Swahili coast. 
The thing that strikes me when I look at Somalia from afar is that the depth of the crisis is, is quite breathtaking. You know, this year we're going to hit the 30th anniversary of the overthrow of the Saeed government. Many of your listeners will remember the U.S. intervention in Somalia in the early 90s. But three quarters of Somalis today weren't even born back then. And so as we talk about the political challenges, there's a Congolese expression that the fish rots from the head down. But after 30 years and more of crisis right now in Somalia, we're just looking at a rotten fish. In the sense that there's a political leadership crisis, not that things haven't been making progress, they have due to, to hard work by Somalis and, and support from the international partners you mentioned, but there's also there's a deepened social crisis in, in terms of economies of violence, in terms of deep divisions and questioning of legitimacy and what a legitimate institution looks like, what a political community looks like. And so as we talk about the political efforts of trying to get elections on track, like in a lot of fractured societies, there's a value of also looking at sort of the social contract and how to engage the public in new ways, how to build consensus and a constituency for peaceful and, and democratic society. I think, you know, one of the reforms in the slow, gradual move towards the establishment of local councils and local government could be a really golden opportunity to strengthen governance for good or for ill. It could in some ways undermine central authorities, but it also provides a, a really a meaningful input channel for women, for young people, for business leaders to begin changing the lived reality of Somalis and create an experience of peace and democracy beyond sort of only the higher level elite processes. If I could jump in on that, Judd, I'd just like to add that, you know, working on Somalia back in 2012, it was really difficult to ever invoke Somalia wherever you were talking about it without someone mentioning the fall of the Bari regime, as Mike mentions, right? But look how far they have come now as a people, despite all of the tumult of the last several decades. They're finally in a place where we're able to have a conversation about why are the elections being delayed? I know it doesn't feel like progress, but in a difficult environment that defines difficult environments, Somalia is turning a page really slowly. I continue to think that it's a place of real hope and optimism, not to take away from the many challenges. But I think that this consensus and the desire for stability really is turning in the right direction. I 100% agree. And I'm really glad that Mike gave us that framing and perspective. But you're absolutely right. As I thought about talking to everyone today, I didn't even put together that it has been 30 years since Said Bari had fallen because, you know, we're just in a different space. So it's great to know where uh, the country is coming from. But there has been a lot of distance from the Black Hawk Down period that I think is most resonant in American minds. Laurent, anything to add in this section? Yes, I would have more a question than a contribution. My question is regarding the situation in Somalia. I can imagine most of the stakeholders now are trying to push that the elections, which has been considered as a solution, should happen, should be achieved. But what if there should be a moment to just stop and rethink or re-question the election as they are now uh, planned as a solution? Do people try to assess the acceptance if the election is a solution by talking to the citizens, the different kind of powerful people in Somalia. This might be more a question than a contribution from a side. No, that's an important question, Laurent. I mean, one of the challenges here is because the process that I laid out this is really about making sure that if you are a presidential candidate or if you are a federal member state leader, 
that you have your people as the electors, right, who are the folks who are going to either choose the next president or who are going to be represented in the new parliament. And so the question is not about do we have an election or do we not have election, but making sure that you have your people in the process. And so that creates big questions around the impartiality of the federal or the state level electoral commissions and the steps in which clan electors are going to be named and then subsequent parliamentarians. So it has a lot to do with making sure that everyone has their political ducks in the row. And of course, there's going to be winners and losers in that process. But what you're raising, for me at least, is something that has to happen way earlier in the process, not when we're already essentially about to enter into extra innings. All right, let's move to our final topic. And I'm really excited to dig into some work that Mike and Laurent have been doing on the responsible sourcing of cobalt in the DRC. For our listeners, the Democratic Republic of the Congo accounts for 55 to 75 percent of the world's supply of cobalt, which is a critical component in manufacturing of batteries for mobile phones and electric vehicles. Mike, let's start with the top. What is the industry's current approach to responsible sourcing of cobalt? You know, you argue that this do no harm approach is suboptimal. You know, why do you think that? Let me start by saying, you know, cobalt is central to the green revolution. It's central to the technology of the future and and climate smart technology. And yet it's sourced from some of the most conflict stricken, most unjust places uh, on earth. Congo consistently ranks at the bottom of human development indexes. It's one of the world's worst humanitarian crises and has been for the last two decades. It's got one of the world's largest peacekeeping missions. And while all of Congo's minerals, including cobalt, can play a really critical role in, in, in the world economy, there's very little benefit experienced by the Congolese people in general and, and those who live in mineral producing areas in particular. And uh, from the industry side, that the profound injustice, the corruption, the security threats uh, have really represented one of the largest sort of legal operational reputational risks in, in their operations and in, in sort of the battery production process. There have been a bunch of watchdog reports and, and exposés over the past few years uh, documenting the kinds of abuses in the cobalt industry, primarily focused on, on child labor and, and um, focused on, on the role of tech companies in, in particular in sourcing uh, cobalt that had been mined by, by children, primarily uh, in, in Katanga and in the southern parts of the DRC. The response to this watchdog pressure campaigns and, and documentation of harms has really focused overwhelmingly on the concept of, of traceability, which means that downstream companies like Apple, Ford, IBM, uh, track the bits of, of cobalt that are in their uh, devices through the batteries back down the supply chain to see whether or not they're produced in, in acceptable conditions. And again, really with the aim of keeping child labor specifically out of their products. And so this is, like you said, it's a, it's a do no harm framework. It's aimed at reassuring the consumer that despite the injustice, despite the poverty, despite the wider problems in Congo, the little bit of cobalt into the device that they buy isn't part of the systemic injustices. But while this this focus on on traceability and, and sourcing has has yielded some benefits, you know it, it is suboptimal, uh, and it really can only be the tip of the needle. At, at its core, the promise that that it embodies is uh, one of buying fruit from a poison tree. Through traceability, we can make sure that the individual device, the individual product, isn't poisoned. But it doesn't do anything to help heal the tree or, or heal the society where the product is made from. And so, you know, it, it's, a, it's a status quo. It's an important ingredient. But absent a, a bigger look and a bigger perspective on 
uh, what mineral wealth means for, for these societies and, and where these societies fit into the fourth industrial revolution that fit into to sort of the, the modern global economy, it's really suboptimal. Managing child labor is in a lot of ways the response to a shame and response cycle. And today it's child labor, but tomorrow it'll be sexual abuse after that environmental degradation. There's an endless amount of harm that could be documented in these kinds of societies, given the nature of the conflict that, that's and, and corruption and exploitation that it had played out there. Responding in a whack-a-mole kind of way uh, to individual reports of abuse doesn't solve the problem. All right. So, Mike, let's talk about something more than just whack-a-mole, right? Let's do the bigger frame. You know, what is Search actually proposing so that you can do more good, so you can not just address the poison, as you know, you suggested with the individual small piece of cobalt, but get at some of the systematic challenges and abuses that are in the mining sector. As we look at the, the situation in Congo and in the, in the cobalt producing uh, regions, there's a huge opportunity to do more good and to shift from sort of a do no harm mentality uh, to how all of us from industry to the Congolese government to civil society globally and, and in Congo, and then with help of the international partners like the US, can restructure and rethink the contribution that, that each of us can bring to uh, stability and peace in, in the country and, and solving some of these issues. We could look, for example, at, at some of the other industries that source high-value products, uh, often artisanally produced from conflict-affected areas. We can look at chocolate. We can look at coffee. Where you have some of the similar challenges, those industries have developed much more comprehensive frameworks involving all of the different stakeholders around what does good look like. Uh, so Nestle, for example, has some of the same traceability child labor challenges, but also charts its progress against the sustainable development goals. And we can see in the cobalt industry how both the new uh, Chisikati government, uh, a U.S. administration committed to climate change uh, and supporting peace and, and aligning American interests with American values, could really deeply engage in communities, engage with the private sector in a way where the benefits uh, of the minerals accrue to the communities and, and are structured in a way that makes sense not only to the Western consumer, uh, but to the producer society and the, the producing communities using a different kind of, of benchmarks and, and one that's set around measuring the whole impact of the mining enterprise, the economic impact, the social impact, the political impact, in addition to really efforts only focused on mitigating one particular or avoiding one particular uh, aspect of harm. Pamela, I'd love to hear your reactions. Can we have a chocolate equivalent in the Congo. You know, how does this compare to what the U.S. government is thinking about when it comes to responsible sourcing of cobalt in the DRC? Can you do what Mike's talking about? Can you get the business community, the DRC government on board? And if not, what what is, in your view, a more feasible approach? Oh, wow, Judd. I mean, how much time do you have? I think your podcast is is only 30 minutes or so. I mean, I, first of all, I really applaud the creative thinking, but I want to take the scope back and look at minerals extraction generally away from just the DRC context. Whether you're talking about industrial scale mining, which has different issues, but sometimes gets overlooked in conversations like, what are we doing about cobalt? Or artisanal scale mining, which employs tens of millions of people around the globe. Minerals extraction is really long on problems when we consider that the shift from petroleum to clean energy could represent a shift to minerals problems if we don't get it right. 
which is why Mike's proposal or idea is, is such an interesting one, because there are no shortage of issues. Pick a mineral. When it comes to Dodd-Frank 1502, right, legislation passed in 2010 to get at breaking the link between conflict minerals, tin, tantalum, tungsten, and gold, and armed groups, Nobody talked about cobalt because it hasn't been associated with conflict. But here we are talking about cobalt for its myriad issues, like 20% of it is artisanally mined in DRC. So the legislation that we adopted back then ushered in this entire industry approach to make sure that those four things mined from that area are appropriately overseen with private sector-led due diligence through the OECD to make sure they are not contributing to conflict and human rights abuses. And that's awesome because we need to continue that and that's been great. However, when you move forward, I have companies all the time asking me, well, what's the next mineral that's going to be a conflict mineral? Well, does that get at the cobalt problem? Every mineral that we are increasingly reliant on has this. So I think the the nugget of promise in, in Mike's perspective here is some Something that's more holistic. So you're taking you're taking the guesswork away from industries because they're constantly asking, well, what next, what next, what next? And we're getting to a place where the modern economy is not going to be less dependent on minerals, right? They're going to be more. So do we think we're just going to stick to the three TGs? No. The concerns that we face are just going to get bigger. But I will also add cobalt is important right now because modern technology requires it in certain quantities. So there's no reason to think that the problem we do deal with with cobalt today is the exact same mineral in the exact same location that we're going to face down the line. I will say that the U.S. government has attempted to be as comprehensive as we possibly can be when it comes to minerals. It's a very large issue with a lot of different concerns domestically as well as internationally. In DRC specifically, we've used sanctions in the natural resources space, particularly the Global Magnitsky Executive Order, which sanctioned minerals tycoon Dan Gertler for his corrupt activity with the former regime. And U.S. policy and international policy is in a space where we are absolutely supporting and working with the current DRC officials to move forward in a in a, as transparent a way as possible so that it is an environment that's receptive to transparent ethical business practices. I love the way that you're you're pulling us back with our framing, because in many respects, what you're talking about, Mike, is not different than what Pamela is saying, is that we actually have to be supply chain agnostic or mineral or commodity agnostic, I should say, right? Like the same principles that we've applied in in cotton or in, in chocolate or have attempted, not as successfully in oil, have to be done for cobalt or whatever the mineral du jour is. So I think that's really useful, Pamela, for us to sort of think specifically about the minerals of today that are generating this attention and, and displacement and problems, but also think about a general paradigm and where how we approach, you know, these key commodities. And Laurent, maybe you have some additional points to add. This is going to be our last intervention for the episode. But, you know, what is the best pitch here for the do more good concept? And, you know, how do we think about it, particularly for, you know, the Biden administration, the Chitsukati government and for industry? Yeah, thank you. I, I, I had the chance to visit some of these areas where uh, the exploitation of, of cobalt is going on in the DRC. And talking from this perspective, clearly in field people see three actors involved. They see the mining company, they see gov- the government who signed the contract with the mining company, 
but yet we still have the population which is less represented in the deal. So for me, there is a kind of triangle that should function a bit more. Most of the, the Western and developed countries tend to sign deal with African countries based on the fact that this is an official document, this is a, a kind of formal agreement, and it's the responsibility of the government to deal with the expectations of the populations. But as Pamela pointed out, we have a, a huge system of corruption in the DRC, and also we have not a good governance system which is in place. And the Congolese government is not showing a high level of accountability towards the, uh, the local populations. So for me, I think what I saw in the field is most of the time, the frustration of the local populations tends to be oriented to the, the mining. And because they are all living in the same area together, so the mining is doing their business in, in the same area, and the local population living around, this tends to be a kind of a tension between two actors. But in fact, the one who should be playing a role to mitigate here and to make sure everybody is satisfied stay apart, which is the government. So I would really encourage the U.S. government to look at this as a triangle relationship and try to support a bit more the government system, the good government in the DRC. And lastly, I would just like to also flag the fact that for most of the Congolese populations, these mining exploitations is an opportunity for them to get open to the world to be connected to some of the most developed countries in the world. And I could advocate to have a bigger presence of some of the companies which are at the end of the channel to be also in the DRC. So if people are producing the kind of smartphones, laptop, and whatever based on these mandrels, it could be a good idea to have also their presence in the world. Instead of giving that perception that external actors just come in to take the minerals and then disappear. Uh, and, and people from the communities don't really see exactly what's, what's the benefit of it and what change is happening to their lives. Thanks, Laurent. That's all the time we have for this episode. We'll see everyone in two weeks. Thanks. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org Africa. Thanks.